This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Elaine Hayes discusses her new book, Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks back at the first half of 2017 in publishing. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we've got a lot of new stuff on the fiction list. Um, John Grisham's Camino Island is still holding steady at number one uh, with a, a mere 47,000 sales this week. Mm. Um, wow, he's, uh, he's really cleaning up there. Uh, at number two is Murder Games by James Patterson. I would have thought that no force in the world could keep James Patterson from <laughs> debuting every single book at number one, but apparently John Grissom has done it. Um, and uh, this one is a serial killer novel uh, about uh, a serial killer who is targeting people through playing cards, and uh, he's known in the tabloids as The Dealer. Uh, I, I feel like this this maybe came from one of those dartboards of of ideas of you know let's uh, what what's some profession that has not yet been turned into serial killing we don't have a review of this yet um, but uh, it's definitely going to appeal to Patterson fans uh, just below it at number three is Use of Force a thriller by Brad Thor this is the 16th book in the Scott Horvath series and uh, we again don't have a review but um, it's a, a pretty uh, unsurprising thriller um, happens uh, you know, a, a lot of international intrigue um, terrorism and uh, Navy SEAL turned covert counterterrorism operative Scott Horvath once again has to save the day uh, just below that is The Duchess by Danielle Steele at number four. Uh, and this one is set in 19th century England. Danielle Steele is usually known for contemporary works. So this is a little bit of a departure for her. And uh, this is um, definitely more on the, the women's fiction side of things. Um, sometimes she writes more romance type books. Um, this one is more about one young woman's journey. And... Uh, no review of it yet, but um, Steele's books are always very popular, and I think everyone will be very interested to see um, how uh, how this one comes yeah. out. Great. Uh, below that, number five, Seven Stones to Stand or Fall by Diana Gabaldon. This is a set of uh, short stories set in her Outlander universe, which, of course, has been turned into the very popular television show, mm-hmm. in addition to being a best-selling series of books. She's been writing these books for a long time. They've got a huge fan base. Um, not often that you see a short story collection this high on the bestseller list. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, this one includes some novellas that have been published elsewhere, as well as two that have never been published anywhere. So definitely one for the fans to grab. Uh, Moving down a little bit, number 18, Everyone's an Alien When You Are an Alien 2. It's very difficult to pronounce this title because many of the words in it are deliberately misspelled. That's Alien, A-L-I-E-B-N. And uh, it's by Johnny Sun, who has a very popular Twitter account um, that is... 
uh, one of those wonderful things about Twitter is uh, it's just recounting the life of an alien who comes to Earth and kind of tries to make the best of it. And it's full of kindness and sweetness, and it's actually really charming and great. Um, nice. So uh, I'm really pleased to see this uh, doing so well. And finally, at number 22, The Child by Fiona Barton. We gave this a starred review, calling it uh, a, a strong, if more subdued, psychological thriller than her debut, The Widow. And uh, it centers on a trio of women who are unknowingly linked by long-buried secrets about to be unearthed. And readers patient with the relatively slow initial pace until the intertwining stories gain momentum will be rewarded with startling twists and a stunning, emotionally satisfying conclusion. Um, nice to see that one hitting the list as well. And Excellent. that's what we've got in hardcover fiction. Well, in nonfiction, all our debuts, which, uh, of which there aren't many, fall into two categories, politics and health. So our debut, uh, number one, Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressivism. This is by radio host Mark Levin and New York Times bestselling author. And uh, we don't have a review of this, but in the uh, promo copy, we say that he revisits the founders' warnings about the perils of overreach by the federal government. Uh, So that's what we have at number one. Uh, Number... Two, The Swamp, Washington's Murky Pool of Corruption and Cronyism and How Trump Can Drain It by Eric Boiling, who is also a best-selling author and also a TV host. This is a Fox News channel. Um, so that's at number two. And then going down the list, 16, Body Love, Live in Balance, Weigh What You Want and Free Yourself from Food Drama Forever by Akeli Levesque. And uh, she's a health and wellness consultant, and she here she shares her secrets on losing weight and also offers 88 recipes to help you do that. Number 18, The Smear, How Shady Politics, Operatives, and Fake News Controls What You See, What You Think, and How You Vote by Cheryl Atkinson. Uh, she's the best-selling author of New York Times best-selling author of Stonewalled. And here, we don't have a review of this, but uh, by the jacket promo, she pulls back the curtain on the shady world of opposition research and reveals the dirty tricks those in power use to influence your opinions. And finally, at number 24, sugar is all the rage. That is um, how to take sugar out of your diet. And this one is called Blast the Sugar Out. Lower blood sugar, lose weight, live better by Ian K. Smith. He's the author of The Shred Power Cleanse, which was on the bestseller list somewhat recently and often debuts there. So, And that's what we have uh, on nonfiction. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Elaine Hayes tells us how the mighty jazz singer Sarah Vaughan made her mark. We'll be right back. I'm Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Elaine Hayes on the line. Her new book is Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan. Hello, Elaine. So glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. So you're a jazz historian and a former editor of uh, Earshot Jazz uh, magazine. Uh, For your first book, how did you settle on Sarah Vaughan as your subject? That's an excellent question, and it began 
really almost 20 years ago. Um, I'm trained as a classical musician, actually. I played piano and viola. And I hadn't listened to a lot of jazz until college when I had a roommate who she played a lot of Sarah Vaughan. And I have to say, I almost immediately fell in love with Sarah's voice. I loved the sound of it is just an amazingly beautiful voice, but I also loved what she did with it musically, how she could swoop from the bottom of her range up to the top, her ability to scat and improvise, which for me as a classical musician was just fascinating. And I was really drawn to her use, uh, her harmonic language. She could put beautiful dissonances in there that would make the music so exciting. But I also came to realize that in addition to her being an outstanding musician, I was really drawn to the presence that she was able to communicate with her music. When I listened to Sarah Vaughan sing, I heard a woman who was strong and confident, who was a master of her craft and really in control of the room that she was singing in and the musicians she was singing with. So as a young woman, I was in college at the time, and I was just you know figuring out where I belonged in the world. What did I want to do? And that Sarah Vaughan you know, being a strong, confident, independent woman, that's something that I wanted to do too, or to be too. And um, a couple years later, when I was a graduate student, I had an opportunity to write a paper about Sarah Vaughan. And so I took it, and that was back in 1998. Wow, wow. wonderful. <laughs> I know, I've been doing this for quite a while. I was just made aware of how long I've been working on this project, on and off, of course. So um, you say on on and off, what really led you to decide this is it, I'm going to focus on this now, it's time to turn it into a book and make it a real thing? Um, well, so I, you know, I wrote a dissertation on her and then I took a long break and I'd always assumed someone else would write a book on Sarah Vaughan. Um, she's such an amazing vocalist, such an important figure in, in jazz and it just never happened. Hmm. So I would say five, six years ago, I was like, hmm. Maybe I should think about returning to this topic and figure out what I would need to do to make it a more mainstream kind of narrative nonfiction style book. And so I just started getting to work, and a couple of years later, this is the result. So let's talk a little bit about Vaughn and her, her style. She's been labeled a jazz singer or, or a blues singer, neither what she uh, particularly liked. Um, but you've, uh, in the subtitle, you've referred to her as a queen of bebop. Tell us about yeah. that choice. Um, yeah, so you are 100% right that Sarah Vaughn, she would often say, yeah, people call me a jazz singer. Sometimes they even call me a blues singer, but I'm a singer. So she was really invested in not having a lot of musical labels. So the choice to call her, you know, have a whole book about her called Queen of Bebop, I think she would have been proud that people perceive her as a queen of bebop, which was the foundation for modern jazz. But she would have probably also been a little frustrated that, hey, you know, I did so many other things, too. But the reason I I chose that um, title, aside from it being catchy and I think a cool title, is that she really was at the center of these bebop and in the thick of it with these bebop musicians. And there have been lots of treatments of Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell. And they're all merited because these guys were, they were titans. But Sarah Vaughan was in the thick of it, in the middle with them. And the kind of the skills that she got as a young woman working with those guys side by side as an equal, um, they informed the rest of her career. So a lot of her worldview started out in that bebop phase. She went on and did so many other amazing things, but a lot of her core beliefs began there. 
What were some of those core beliefs? Um, I think one of them is this idea of not wanting to be labeled. A lot of the bebop musicians, they were really, at that time, you know, the early 40s, they were, of course, they were developing this new, extraordinarily inventive, virtuosic form of music, but they were really also carefully thinking about how do how do how does america or how do listeners or how does white america how do they think about black musicians um are we you know guys who kind of come from the south and we have just this intuitive take on music are we urban sophisticated cosmopolitan intellectuals who are making a very new kind of music that is abstract it's difficult to listen to um really bebop is a turning point in the way that we think about jazz. It was kind of that moment where jazz started going from a music that is vernacular or during the swing years of pop music to something that we now consider an art music. And those beboppers and Sarah Vaughan were very important into that in that process. So you were just talking about how you know the, the, how we look at jazz um, and jazz singing. A lot had come. Many of the musicians had come from the South, uh, but Sarah Vaughn is from Newark, New Jersey. Tell us a little bit about her early life. Well, like so many um, African American vocalists, her training began in the church. Her family was very active in the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Newark, New Jersey, and some of her earliest musical experiences began there, not surprisingly. There are accounts of her as a toddler kind of sneaking up to the front of the church so that she can look at what the organist is doing, and then her humming along with the her mother as she sang in the church choir. And then when she finally began taking piano lessons, she took them from the church organist. And then eventually she did begin singing in the choir at, her, at Mount Zion Baptist Church. But um, she pretty quickly started exploring Newark's extremely vibrant live music scene um, in the black neighborhood where she lived called The Hill. There were you know, dozens of extraordinarily talented local musicians and tons of clubs where she basically you know, started out listening voraciously, kind of sneaking out of her parents' house as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, or perhaps even younger, to go to these nightclubs and listen to music. And then eventually she began singing there as well. And I think another important part about Newark, aside from it being an extremely vibrant place to grow up, is that it's really near New York. So whenever big live acts would go um, be kind of on their way to New York, like the big national acts, they'd stop in Newark too. So she got an opportunity to hear Duke Ellington, the Earl Hines Band, Ella Fitzgerald, Josephine Baker. And um, of course, since she was so close to Newark, or she was so close to New York rather, it gave her an opportunity to start going up to New York to listen to music too. And then then that eventually um, led to her deciding to perform at the Apollo Theater's Amateur Night in 1942. So let's talk about uh, that amateur night at the Apollo. How did she get there? Well, in October of 1942, she decided, you know, to try her luck there. And she ventured up to New York City and um, auditioned for the show. And I think one of the things we need to keep in mind about the Apollo Theater is that in the 30s and 40s, it was the center of black entertainment, definitely in New York City, but probably also the entire United States, and that amateur night crowds were really rowdy and ruckus and boisterous. They would throw things down on the stage. They would boo and hiss if they didn't like a performer. Um, So her deciding to go do that as an 
18-year-old who looked actually much younger than she actually was, was kind of a big deal. She also had decided to just sing a song, Body and Soul, which was extraordinarily popular. Um, Billie Holiday had a very popular version at the time. And the MC of Apollo, the Apollo Amateur Night basically said, you know, the audiences would have been able to um, sing along with Sarah in perfect harmony while booing her off stage. So like I said, huge risk. Um, but she went for it. And she really ended up nailing her, her performance. She was poised and confident. She sounded much older than her 18 years would suggest. And most importantly, she sang this song that everybody knew, Body and Soul, in a way that was completely different in her own way. Tell us a little bit about the quality of her voice. Um, some people have said she had the range of an opera singer. Oh, she really did. Yeah, it's definitely one of those voices. A lot of people have described it as a voice that comes along you know, once or twice every couple generations. And it's also been described as, you know, like one of the best voices of the 20th century. Yeah, huge range, this incredibly deep, you know, just, it's it's almost hard to describe the voice. It's just so beautiful. It's hard to put adjectives to it. But I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is that she really could have been an opera singer, but she was black and poor from Newark, and she simply did not have access to the training that she would have needed to become an opera singer. So instead, she ended up going into jazz and really changing the way that many people thought about jazz singing. So she was unflappable when it came to choosing the songs that she sang and where and how she sang them. Uh, She was dealing with business managers and producers who wanted to shape her image, and she really pushed back on that. Um, You talked about hearing her strength come through when when you heard the recordings of her. How did that strength sort of manifest in her life when she wasn't being recorded? Well, I think we need to remember how truly difficult it was being... often the only woman in a world that was really a boys club. Um, Thinking back to those early years with the Billy Eckstein and Earl Hines band, like there are 16, 18 guys and just her. And so she really had to learn how to be one of the guys. And um, that that involved her, you know, she would smoke and drink and sometimes do drugs with them. She would gamble and was in on the band's pranks. She, if there wasn't a a bunk available for her. She would share a room with one of the guys, just completely immersing herself in the milieu of the band. And as a result, they, you know, treated her like one of the guys, but they also took her seriously as a, they took her seriously as a musician. Um, there are a lot of times kind of girl singers got a bad rap as being, you know, they didn't really know what they were doing musically. They were just there to be pretty. So there were a lot of ways that they tried to dismiss the contributions of a woman and she found ways to overcome that in later years i think we need to realize when she was the leader of her own band she's the boss she's got three guys sometimes more that are looking to her for musical direction and she figured out amazing ways to mentor musicians and kind of create these environments where they could learn and grow and they could all collaborate together who were some of the musicians that she mentored? I haven't heard at all about this side of her life, so if you can dig into that yeah. a little more, I'd love to. Well, I to. think that was one of the fascinating things that I was able to find as I was doing this research, is that in the 60s and the 70s, perhaps more so in the 60s, she had a lot of really young musicians who are now are st- still around. 
I remember talking to the bassist Buster Williams, who um, just turned 75 this year. And when he started with her band, he was 21 or 22. And he was just talking about how she was just this master at creating an environment where he felt like he was free to explore. And, you know, she would do this in ways that don't necessarily seem obvious. One of the truly funny stories that Buster told me, for example, was he started playing with the band in Chicago. I think it was July of 1963. It's his first gig. Like they do the first set of the night and she calls him up to her hotel room. I think they were doing a gig at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. And she starts to have a conversation with him saying, oh, you did such a great job tonight. I really love the way you play. Um, I think you're going to have a really wonderful career. And he's so excited and pleased to hear this but meanwhile she is rolling up a joint and she lights it and starts smoking from it and then she passes it to him and says oh hey you know here why don't you smoke part of this joint and so he's a young man and he's never smoked marijuana before and he's like oh what am i going to do but fortunately his father had prepared him for this this moment <laughs> when he went, when buster williams went out on the road when he was 17 his father gave him a bunch of life lessons and one of them was how to pretend to smoke a joint and basically <laughs> you kind of hold down on the tip of it and then pretend to inhale um, but the problem is that the embers at the other end of the marijuana joint don't you know glow or become red so he's pretending to smoke this joint and sarah's like what what's going on here you're doing it wrong so she proceeds <laughs> to show him how to smoke a joint and he's like she hands it back and he's like i was a afraid not to smoke this joint <laughs> it's like the first time i smoked pot was with sarah vaughn um so aside from being a funny, charming story. He made the point that, you know, this was more than about just smoking, learning how to smoke a joint. She was sending him a larger message about, um, you know, I'm going to create this environment for you where you can be comfortable and you can be safe and you can learn how to, you know, you can explore musically, you can take chances and you can grow as a musician. And she expected the musicians she worked with to do that. Um, but she just – and it wasn't in this overhanded way where, like, you will do this. It was more of, you know, here. Here are the opportunities. Um, Buster Williams said that she was an example by her excellence. It was never this overpowering thing. It was just she was excellent, and she expected them to be too. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Elaine Hayes, author of Queen of Bebop, about Sarah Vaughn, and uh, telling these wonderful stories about her and her band. And uh, this is another thing I didn't know about her, was that she had her own band, and um, she really uh, supported them as a musician. The first time I sang with a jazz band, I remember the band leader sort of instructing the musicians that supporting a singer is like holding a baby. You know, you, you have to, you have to be extra strong to help them feel strong and um, to, to let the singer know that they're supported. I've never heard of a singer as a band leader um, supporting her band this way. So this is, uh, this is totally fascinating to me. 
Yeah, you know, I she she mentored a handful of younger musicians and what you were mentioning just now reminded me of some things that Bob James a jazz pianist told me and again when he worked with her in probably 64 to 68 or so um, you know he was just beginning his career and he was he told me all these different things he learned from Sarah but one of the things he two things are most relevant here one of them was he you know, Sarah liked to sing her ballads really slow. And if she, if the band wasn't singing them slow enough, she had all these cues to, to show them, no, no, go slower. And he was saying that aside from it feeling like, you know, there were these gaping holes between each beat, you know, from those experiences of learning of of, you know, like her, you know, emphasizing tempo and going slow, he learned that if you find just the right tempo to support the music, music going around you, you know, these amazing musical things can happen. You can explore and stretch out and do things that if you didn't get the tempo just right, you might other, not otherwise been able to do. So I want to talk a little bit about her personal life. She was, uh, in, amidst her, her professional singing career, she was married three times. Uh, and while she wasn't able to conceive herself, she adopted a girl in the 1960s, I believe. Tell us about her personal life a little bit. What was going on then? Well, like you said, she was married three times and she had five long-term partners. And she really was, in, and she often made her romantic interest at the time her manager. So she's really kind of intertwining this, these roles of personal life and musical life. And I think that's in part a reflection of music was everything to her. And she wanted to have her partners involved in every aspect of her life. Unfortunately, she um, had a number of her romances were very tumultuous and you're t you were talking about the early 60s and when she adopted her daughter she, that was with her second husband and that relationship in particular was very rocky and she experienced an enormous amount of domestic violence um, financial emotional physical abuse that i think was very difficult for her and ultimately ended in that relationship and coming to a close and them getting divorced but yeah at times her personal life it was rocky and she would often say that, and I think she regretted these difficult marriages, but she would often talk about how, you know, when things are getting rough in my personal life, I just keep on singing. You know, that's my salvation. That's the way that I, I get through things. So her career spanned decades, um, and obviously it was during a time when music was changing a lot. The popular music scene was shifting uh, you know, from from the fifties through the seventies, and really you know, going back to the forties to to when she was at the Apollo Theater. Um, so did she adapt to the times, or did every era just have to take her as she was? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think back to her early years with the Beboppers, and she was talk about how she was keeping up with what Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker do, were doing like she was running through all these chord changes it was a very abstract way of singing which quite frankly we don't have any recorded evidence of um, but she gradually got much better at kind of reining in some of those things and streamlining her style in the late 40s and into the 50s so that 
um, it would appeal to both a jazz audience and a pop audience. Like it's, she could sing in a way that where the jazz intelligentsia would be like, oh yeah, it's so amazing, but it was still accessible. So pop people were like, oh, this is really interesting. Here's some cool new music. Later in her career, as the musical landscape is really shifting, for example, with the rise of rock and roll, um, a lot of jazz singers had to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? There's not as many places for me to work. Radio is not playing as much jazz and we don't have recording contracts. You know, they weren't as available to them. So a lot of jazz musicians uh, shifted their style and you hear that's actually when jazz fusion came about. And Sarah Vaughn, she did not go that route. Um, Instead, she kind of at this particular moment in time, she held to her guns and basically said, you know, this is how I sing. This is what I do. And she kept on working like she always did and kind of created some new niches for herself and kind of embraced who she was and found new opportunities. So what was her legacy in jazz and particularly for black women? Um, well, like I said, I feel like she's... And when she was coming up in the 40s, she really kind of changed the way that jazz vocalists thought about what they could do with their voices and what could be jazz singing. Um, And that's something she continued doing throughout her career. And when I think about her legacy to other vocalists, I feel like it's one of those things where you, like I listen, when I'm listening to a new jazz vocalist, I'm like, oh, I hear a little Sarah Vaughn lick in there. You know, that's, yeah, that's great. But I think, and my talking to um, vocalists like Diane Reeves and Anne Hampton Calloway, um, some of the major voices of our current time, it became clear to me that one of her larger legacies was kind of helping vocalists understand that they didn't need to be the chick singer. There were other alternatives to them. There was They could imagine their voices in ways that allowed them to be more integrated into the ensemble that allowed them to be a serious musician too. Well, you had talked about uh, earlier on that this was nearly a, you know, a 20 year long process, uh, not, you know, working on it continuously, but what was your research like for this? Uh, you had mentioned just now interviewing a couple of singers and musicians. How did you go about, I mean, which ones were stand out, you know, stood out for you? Which of these interviewees and how did you go about researching? Um, Yeah, I was fortunate to conduct a lot of interviews with her past uh, musicians and some of these current vocalists. And, you know, most of them were unique and special in 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 their own way. For me, some of the highlights were Diane Reeves, Anne Hampton Calloway, Cecile McLaurin, Sullivant, Bob James, Buster Williams. Carl Schroeder, I could go on and on. Um, but in addition to doing a lot of interviews, I'm, I really enjoy going back and looking at historical newspapers and magazines. And so many more of those are available now. Um, in the last 10 years, I would say, um, just thanks to digitizing all this stuff, I was able to look at such a huge number of, new, of primary sources from like little podunk newspapers in a tiny little town or the full scope of African-American newspapers. And in that process of just kind of looking at all this primary source material, I was able to kind of ferret out so many different perspectives about Sarah Vaughan. It could be um, the black press, the white press, jazz critics, popular music press. Um, so a very rich and diverse picture came t- 
to light. And I also was coming to realize that, you know, before I started researching Sarah Vaughan for my, like the second stage for this particular book, I had not seen that many interviews by her. And I didn't think that, I just assumed, oh, maybe she just didn't do a lot of interviews. You know, she was not, she was an introverted person. She hated doing interviews. Maybe she just didn't do that many. But by going back and looking at a lot of the newspaper coverage of her 60s and 70s and 80s in particular, she gave a lot of interviews. And she, she didn't like doing it, but she did it often. So I was able to find all this evidence or this, I was able to reinsert her voice into her own story, basically. What a wonderful thing to do, especially for someone whose voice was so important to her. Yeah. When I say voice, I mean beyond the singing voice, like her just speaking for herself. Mm-hmm. And what was the end of her career and the end of her life like? How does her story conclude? Well, she kept on singing right up to the end. In fact, um, she kept on talking about, oh, yeah, I'm tired of this life on the road and touring all the time. Um, because really, until the very end, she could be out there 30, 40 plus weeks a year, which is incredibly grueling. Wow. But eventually, um, she got sick. She got lung cancer, and it took a while to diagnose. Mm -hmm. um, and she kept on singing as long as she possibly could. And she didn't tell a lot of people how ill she was. Um, but, yeah, she just kept on going until she couldn't go anymore. And, in fact, while she was in the hospital um, get, receiving treatment, Quincy Jones and the producer George Duke would visit her in the hospital with sheet music and a tape recorder. They were planning her next album. And a day or two before she died, they had planned a recording session. And she called up Quincy and said, oh, I can't do it today, but you know what? Maybe tomorrow. You know, we'll do it tomorrow. I can still sing while I'm lying down in bed. Oh. And unfortunately, she was not able to do that recording session because she passed away the next day. Wow. So um, this has been quite a labor for you, this project, uh, on and off. And uh, what are you focused on now? Or are you just taking a break for a little bit and catching your breath? I'm taking my break and catching my breath. I'm, I'm finding it's difficult. I, I've enjoyed working on Sarah Vaughan so much, and I love her voice so much. I'm finding it difficult to move on. I, I don't quite want to yet. So are you just uh, hanging out and listening to your Sarah Vaughn records? Um, is it a different listening experience now with everything that you know about her life? Yeah, it. the music means more to me now, I think, than it did before. And I feel like I hear different, I hear it differently. You know, I said at the beginning of the interview that when I first started listening to her more than 20 years ago, I heard this strong, independent woman and that is still the case, but now I understand more about what, why she needed to be strong. So the music resonates even more now, I think. We've been talking with Elaine Hayes. You can find her book, Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan, in stores right now. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the big stories in books of the first half of 2017, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is back to give us a half year in review. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well. Hey, Mark. Hello, Jim. So, uh, what's been going on? Yeah, you stole my opening. I was going to say, <laughs> if this is the first week in July, you must be doing a review for the first half of the year. That, and that's and that's what right. I heard. Yeah. No, how, how are we already halfway through this year? It I seems know, like right? it's gone by really fast. Yes, yes. Well, you know, when you're enmeshed with watching the Trump world all the time, things speed by. Indeed. It really so, does. So, what's been happening in publishing? How, how has the Trump world been affecting things? Right. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a good point, Rose because, you know, early on, the first couple of months, January, February, and even into March, uh, sales are off uh, slightly. Uh, a lot of people attributed it to people staying home and, you know, all absorbed with what's going on with the election and the, and the new administration. But um, happy to say that uh, at the halfway point, uh, print sales were up about 3%. Um, which, given everything we just talked about and the lack of a bestseller, which is something we can talk about mm. uh, in a few minutes, you know, is it, a pretty good achievement, I think. Great. Right. So, well, let's talk about that lack of a bestseller. We have, that was the same conversation we had a, uh, in January about the last season, too. We didn't have a blowout. There hasn't been that blowout book now for two halves of the year. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Actually, I was just talking to somebody about it this morning. And their take on it was, well, maybe we should say that because sales are stable or going up right. a little bit. Maybe we should think of it more as, well, it's not as hit driven as it used to be. Right mm. now, I don't know. That might be a little too early to make that uh, judgment. But I know it's something worth thinking about because certainly, um, you know, the first half of the year was remarkably similar in some ways to the last half of the year, especially at the top of the bestseller list for uh, for January through June, where mm-hmm. all the places you'll go uh, was the, the top seller in the first half of the year. And it was also the top seller in the first half of last year. Mm-hmm. And that was, everybody might know, it's, uh, it's a very favored um, gift for graduation. So with the... Uh, its sales will kind of uh, drift off the, the rest of the year. But, you know, it sold 25,000 copies more this year than last year. Mm. So either there was a lot more graduates or <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> people were running out of uh, things to do. So, and again, we should say that, you know, that's on, um, that's on the print side of things. But if you look down the list, and I think you'll all recognize uh, on the print side these names, and it'll take a little while until we get to um, a new title, Milk and Honey. Been on the list for a while. It was number two. A man called Oove was three. Hillbilly Elegy was four. Uh, Hidden Figures, which is sort of new. The movie tie-in was five. Um, Camino Island uh, by Grisham's newest, uh, mm-hmm. which came out granted, you know, late later in the first half of the year. Right. Like that just, was just a few weeks ago. Right. And we've yeah. really been watching that just hang out in its spot at the top of the bestseller list and not give an inch to anybody else. Right. And he he's at number nine for the first six months of the year. You know, wow. so that's so that's how it's been going. Um, but what we also do is, you know, we we see that's the print list from Bookscan. And then to to get a try to get a um idea of what's selling in ebooks, we go to the Amazon ebook list. Mm-hmm. And there, there are um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of changes. There's not much similarity at all between uh, the ebook list and the 
and the print list, um, pastures there has been. And what's really striking about uh, the Amazon list is that there are 12 books from Amazon imprints that are on the top 20. Uh, last year at this time, there was only one. So you might ask why. <laughs> and uh, we did check with Amazon to see if they had maybe had changed the way they um, were, were uh, counting up the bestseller list, if they had added something different that they had it in the past. And they said no, that they were using the same criteria to put it in. So I, I guess maybe they're doing a better job in marketing. I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, putting a little more energy and effort to marketing that than others, perhaps. And some people might use the word marketing as fooling around with the website to put their own titles. <laughs> right, right, right. right. One, one does wonder. Yeah, yeah. In a more favorite yeah. position. But it, it is, it, it's really striking. I mean, go, to go from one um, to, to last year, the first six months, the year to 12, this, uh, this time around is... Uh, you know, it's a surprise. And some of these titles, I don't know, stop me when you've heard of one. Uh, Beneath the Scarlet Sky, uh, Lake Union title was the second. Uh, and in Farley Field, another Lake Union was three. Dead Certain by, you know, Thomas and Mercer was four. Everything We Keep, uh, Lake Union was five. Uh, so you sort of get the idea. I uh, haven't even heard of their Lake yeah. Union imprint. What is it? What does it focus on? Like, what types of books? Uh, it's sort of mystery-ish. Huh. Um, you know, so they're all genre imprints right. in here. Interesting. Um, number one, uh, to be fair, was The Handmaid's Tale. Well, sure. Um, no surprise. Uh, Houghton Mifflin. And The Handmaid's Tale was interesting. Um, even in the Kindle list and the, the print list, the, the books that did make sort of a dual, um, dual showing were The Handmaid's Tale was in both. 1984 was in both. Um, and Hillbilly Elegy was in both. So books that have been, you know, framed by right. what's been going on in Washington uh, certainly certainly sold well and were, you know, among the more popular titles this year. Wow. What are some other interesting trends that you've seen? Well, um, took a look at the categories, you know, the big four, um, adult fiction and nonfiction and juvenile fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, there's something a little bit for everybody since um, sales were up in all four or four categories. So that's, I think, you know, something else that can take as a positive look for the industry. Um, juvenile fiction was up the most, uh, 5%. And again, that was driven uh, in some ways by the su continued success <laughs> of the Seuss book. Right. Um, but what was also noticeable a bit in... Um, adult nonfiction was that it was up 2%. Now, that might not sound like much, but last year, after the first six months of the year, it was up 12% because, and do you remember this, the first half of last year, adult coloring, coloring books, books. Yep. Right. were still selling pretty well, yeah. even though you know 2015 was where their breakout year. So um, this year, to have a 2% gain on top of that 12% gain, as well as the fact that the two big categories that were housed where the adult coloring books were were stored, so to speak, um, their sales went down by 30%. Mm. So you could see the slope that happened for adult coloring books. But, you know, they came back, uh, you know, Manchester's still hanging with a 2% increase. So um, that's great. So that's a positive. Yeah. So, you know, all in all, um, you know, in the terms of format, hardcover had a really good first six months, uh, up 7%. Trade paperback was up 2 And again, 
uh, adult coloring books, and most every all of them were trade paper. So to see that um, to see that hold steady there, uh, despite the decline in trade uh, adult paperbacks, adult coloring book sales is pretty good. Um, you know, two weak spots that are going to continue. Mass market paperback was down about nine percent. You know, continues to trail, and physical audio, you know, continues uh, sure. to decline. Mm. You know, and we all know the reason because digital audio is right. doing so well, right. and um, you know, digital audio we, we don't have it broken out here, but by all indications, you know, had a good first half of the year. Great. So it it feels to me like the digital share of the market has kind of stabilized. Is that the vibe that you're getting that the the split between digital and print is is sort of holding steady? Because um, I I know there was some notion that um, ebooks were just going to keep eating away at print oh, well, sales yeah, forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that really doesn't seem to be happening. No, I think that almost ended two years or so ago. But this is I think just more indication of that. You know, again with print going up. Uh, 3%. And, you know, for a number of years there, it was pretty clearly going down. Right. Um, you know, we don't have any, um, any cons- you know, comprehensive numbers on ebooks because Amazon doesn't give them out. Right. Um, but, you know, what we saw from publishers' reports, you know, for the first quarter, you know, ebook sales are still pretty soft. Mm. Um, so, if anything, you know, when ebook sales started, trailing off and slowing up a bit. You know, publishers weren't unhappy about that. Right. But now right. I'm starting to wonder if they wouldn't like to see book sales start going up again. Um, because overall, you know, sales and trade are still pretty flat. And uh, uh, does this, uh, do we have an indication where books are being bought uh, outside of Amazon? Um, well, this just gives... Um, some broad parameters. Yeah. Uh, the retail and club uh, section was up 4%, right. and that does include Amazon. Well, there's real softness, and we've seen it before, and some of this links back into mass market paperback. You know, mass merchandisers, Walmarts of the world, their sales in the first half, they were off 8%. Mm. And, you know, a lot of that is uh, mass market paperback. So right. there's, there's still, you know, kind of, we can see the how that combination works there. No more revolving racks at the, at the drugstore. You know, it's a, right. tough, it's a tough sell out there for that. I feel old just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Jim, thank you very much for that report. Um, always good to get this uh, kind of overview of how the industry is doing. Hey, well, thanks, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Margaret Maron, author of Takeout, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 